Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... Filmmaker and photographer Lauren Greenfield, who directed movies like Queen of Versailles and Generation Wealth, is here to talk about her new movie, The Kingmaker. It's a portrait of Imelda Marcos. I went in not wanting to make a biopic, not wanting to make a historical documentary, but also needing to tell the history of the Philippines so that you understand what is happening in the present day situation and how terrifying it is that there is a kind of cyclical history where what was thrown out in 1986 and everybody said, never again, we're not going back to the dictatorship of the Marcos, the corruption, the human rights abuses, and to see it actually coming back in the present day. That's coming up. But first, I'm here with Jen Yamato to talk about some culture news. Jen, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me here. What is going on with this sort of unexpectedly ongoing drama over Martin Scorsese's comments about Marvel movies? As you might remember, he's been receiving a lot of backlash over comments where he initially said that Marvel movies are not cinema. Well, the reason we are here today is because this debate will not die. It started about a month ago and Scorsese gave an interview Completely not about this topic, by the way, in which he was asked his opinion on Marvel movies, and he basically said they're not art. And that ignited what has continued to be an unrelenting culture war, really, in the film community over whether or not Marvel movies are art and whether or not they also constitute some threat to what people like Scorsese might consider true art. I know this has been going on now, I think, a lot longer already than anyone would have expected. Martin Scorsese both sort of expanded upon and in some ways doubled down on his initial comments with a somewhat lengthy and quite powerful op-ed that he wrote for The New York Times entitled, I said Marvel movies aren't cinema. Let me explain. What's in that op-ed? In his New York Times op-ed, which came out earlier this week, which reignited what had already been an unending discourse, he said that what I meant was, yeah, they're not art, and they are furthermore threatening art because they put the squeeze on an already limited number of screens available to to films distribution-wise. He laid out a lot of really thoughtful arguments about his thoughts on Marvel. And really, what he's talking about is not solely Marvel movies, not just MCU movies. He's talking about a kind of movie, a kind of movie that is more a product to some people than an art piece. And he he writes about it in his op-ed in a very wistful way. He's sad that this is a new reality that didn't exist when he first started out. And he kind of explains that he doesn't seem to have any ill will towards these movies. He knows that they have an audience, a huge audience at that, and that those audiences of movies like Marvel movies might have emotional responses to those movies, to seeing what happens to Iron Man after like 20 plus films. He says they're just not for him. And he says he's sad about it. But also, I think he, I mean, one thing I found really interesting in the essay was that he's talking about the idea that Marvel movies or those sort of like franchise films, the way that they're crowding out other filmmakers, both from the industry of being able to make 
films in the first place. And then also from just the exhibition screens that, that wanting to go to a movie theater to see a movie, often the only real choices you have are these sort of franchise films. And I think that's a nuance that he was sort of adding to his argument in the essay that we hadn't seen from some of his previous just like sound cups. Oh, absolutely. And in the sort of months time between his initial comment, which sparked a lot of debate on Twitter and social media and in interviews, if any filmmaker was being interviewed in the last month and they were some director of note, they were definitely asked whose side they stood on in the great war between Martin Scorsese and Marvel. And so you've gotten a lot of different opinions on both sides in the last month. And it's really interesting to see how fervent each side really, really sticks to their side of it. It's really a philosophical and a generational war of semantics, if you ask me. How do you define what is cinema? Is this movie cinema? Is Thor Ragnarok not cinema? You're not going to find a lot of resolution in that debate these days. It's interesting. I think that Scorsese doubled down in his op-ed. He expanded on his thoughts in a very eloquent way that a lot of people agreed with in the film community. Fans, journalists, critics, filmmakers. Actually, what's interesting is you're seeing a lot of filmmakers who do work within the Marvel framework, who do work within studio blockbusters, who obviously have a lot of admiration for Scorsese, trying to find a place in the middle of that conversation that bridges that divide. Yeah, I'm finding it interesting. I mean, it's funny you bring up how like every filmmaker being interviewed, you know, either you ask them the question or a lot of people, frankly, are just bringing it up on their own. I've found it seems to point to these existential questions about why we make movies, what we think these movies are for nowadays, how we want them to be seen, how they are being seen. There's something kind of annoying about this ongoing conversation. It also is strangely exciting and feels really vital. And it's kind of, I find it fun to hear people talking in this like big picture way about why they make movies and what they're for. But is it also fun to hear this endless debate over this movie being cinema or not when every filmmaker thinks that they're making cinema? I don't think there is a director who works within the specific framework that Scorsese has identified, Marvel, that does not believe in film. And we saw that when his initial quote came out. We saw the filmmaker James Gunn of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies give a statement that said he was outraged when people picketed The Last Temptation of Christ, Scorsese's movie, without having seen the film. So he was equating Scorsese's controversial film and brushed with controversy with this and saying that it made him sad to then see Scorsese judge his films in this way. I don't know that that's the strongest counter-argument that has emerged, but it was one of the earliest and from a prominent filmmaker. And since then, we've seen a lot of filmmakers chime in on Twitter. There's the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse co-director Peter Ramsey, for example, who gave a really thoughtful and nuanced multi-part comment on basically making art within the Marvel system on Twitter. I think you're going to find a lot of people on both sides of this argument who will never, never agree with the other side. Do you think this is a conversation we're just going to continue to have maybe all through awards season or now sort of indefinitely until the next Marvel movie comes out? I thought this discourse had died or was on its last legs before Martin Scorsese decided to put out his op-ed. Once he did that, 
it was undeniable. This is a thing we're going to be talking about all season long. I bet it's going to come up all award season. What I wonder is if people are going to start calling Marvel movies, as Scorsese does in his piece, quote, worldwide audiovisual entertainments, as opposed to movies. The Marvel worldwide audiovisual entertainment universe doesn't quite have the same ring to it as the MCU, but I think people are going to have those things in mind, these philosophical wars in mind when they go see both art films and superhero films in the next little while. Jen, thanks so much for joining us to give us a little uh, shorthand here on the Scorsese Marvel showdown. And we'll see if we continue to talk about this in the future. You know what, Mark? As they say in The Irishman, it's what it is. (laughs) Thanks, Jen. And now, it's time for Glenn Whip's Awards Minute. There are a lot of different ways a movie can get buzz during the Oscar season. One of those ways is just the number of brawls that break out in the parking structure before a screening of a movie. And that was the case with Greta Gerwig's adaptation of Little Women. I've never been to a movie, and this was at the Director's Guild, Big Theater, Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood. I've never been to a movie this fraught with tension just to get a seat. Dozens and dozens of journalists were left out in the lobby, couldn't get in overflow. Everybody came. Everyone who RSVP'd for this movie came. And that's Academy members, Guild members. It's interesting because I think people are underestimating just what a force this movie is going to be. And it speaks a lot to me. I hear this, ah, another Little Women, which is just such a dumb, sexist thing to say because no one says, ah, no, another Bond movie, another Star Wars movie. This is the first big adaptation of Little Women in 25 years. And people are really excited about seeing it. And and I saw that at this Director's Guild screening. And I think we're going to see it through the Oscar season. The movie arrives on Christmas Day. It stars Saoirse Ronan. It has Timothy Chalamet. It has Florence Pugh. It has a great cast. It has Meryl Streep, Laura Dern. Amazing cast. Amazing adaptation of a beloved classic. I think it's going to surprise a lot of people this Oscar season. Thank you, Glenn. And I'm here today with filmmaker and photographer Lauren Greenfield, who directed such documentaries as The Queen of Versailles and Generation Wealth, to talk about her new film, The Kingmaker, which is a portrait of Imelda Marcos. When I became First Lady, it became demanding for me. I have to dress up and make myself more beautiful because the poor always looks for a star in the dark of the night. I don't have an answer for why we allow Imelda to even open her mouth. The best politician that I've ever seen is my mother. Her big dream is to restore the greatness of the Marcos family. It's scary if these people are brought to power again. I was always criticized for being excessive, but that is mothering. 3,000 pairs of shoes. Shipping animals from Africa. Picasso. Michelangelo. Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Going into the story, I don't know how much you knew about the ins and outs of the last roughly 50, 60 years of domestic Philippine politics. Was it difficult for you 
to get up to speed on all that and to realize you're suddenly covering the contemporary political system. I mean, it'd be hard enough if it was in the United States, but in a whole other country. It was a big learning experience. I worked with a journalist, William Meller, who had covered the Philippines for many years. I also worked with a Filipino producer, Marissa Politan, and a big Filipino team. And they really helped me kind of get my grounding, also a team of archival researchers. There has been a lot written and filmed about Imelda Marcos. So I could learn the history. My film takes place in the present. And what I tried to do is limit the way the history was used to what we really needed to know to understand the Philippines and the contemporary situation and what we needed to know to understand Amelda and the Marcos family. I went in not wanting to make a biopic, not wanting to make a historical documentary, but also needing to tell the history of the Philippines so that you understand what is happening in the present-day situation and how terrifying it is that there is a kind of cyclical history where what was kind of thrown out in 1986 and everybody said, never again, we're not going back to the dictatorship of the Marcos, the corruption, the human rights abuses, and to see it actually coming back in the present day. She does fit quite well in with the sort of your previous subjects, you know, from Queen of Versailles to Generation Wealth to Imelda. So when you first encounter her, is she like no one you've ever met? Or was there some sense of like, I I know you, I've met your kind before? Well, I was drawn to her because she was this kind of, in a way, modern day queen, aspirational queen, had this allure of celebrity and wealth that made people like her. But she was also really different than anybody I'd ever covered because of the political aspect. She's a first lady and really more than a first lady because she was such a powerful political player in her own right. She's a master spinner of media and of her self-image. Part of the content of the story ended up being the way she rewrites history and very successfully. I wanted to show the audience also how Imelda tries to kind of art direct so that they could have some context for how to interpret what she says. So in the first scene, we see her getting made up by her 24-7 hair and makeup person on staff, and she's asking if she looks all right for the interview. And then I'm taking her picture, and I ask her to look at my camera. She says, should I look at you? And I say, yes. And then she doesn't look at me. So I wanted to let the audience know from the beginning that Imelda tells her story in her own way, and you have to kind of understand it as such. So she's very much in control of what she shows. But as I realized that she was an unreliable narrator, I brought in other voices to kind of fact check in a way what she says. How does a project like The Kingmaker get started? How do you end up in a room with Imelda Marcos? I had been working for 25 years on a project about wealth, and that was my last work, Generation Wealth. And Imelda Marcos was always an iconic reference in my work, but I never thought I would have the chance to actually meet her. I read an article by a journalist named William Meller about her and found out that she was alive and back in the Philippines and most interestingly had created an island of animals in 1976. She had depopulated an island in the South China Sea of its indigenous people and brought in more than 100 animals from Africa on a boat. 
And I was so fascinated by this ultimate extravagance. Like we know about the 3,000 shoes, but this involved living things and human rights and four generations of inbreeding later. I wanted to see how they survived and how Imelda survived. And the journalist introduced me to her, and that's how I ended up in a room with her. I mean, the movie sort of starts with the animals, but it becomes so much more. When did you kind of realize there was much more to the story of Imelda Marcos in her late repose than just the story of these animals on this island? Right. Well, I thought it was going to be about this historic extravagance. And what happened is the story came rushing into the present with a political comeback of the Marcos. And when I began, she was a congresswoman, but it was before her son, Bong Bong Marcos, had declared for vice presidency. Once he embarked on this national election and with her right behind him helping him, it started to change the story. Although when I began, nobody thought he had a chance of getting any momentum. As his campaign became successful and then ultimately as he became a front runner, I realized there was a much bigger, more relevant, more timely story about the rise to power of this family that had stolen 5 to $10 billion and been run out of the palace. They were kicked out in 1986. People climbing the gates, jumping on their beds, the Americans sending a helicopter to get them out. How did they get back? It was almost like if we could imagine President Nixon coming back and winning an election. And so that really changed the story for me. The Animal Island ended up still being important as a kind of symbol of the consequences of wealth and power. And then even more, it became about inbreeding and political dynasty. As a filmmaker, how do you stay nimble enough, essentially, to sort of recognize the new story when it presents itself to you? I mean, that's kind of what I love in documentary film. It was a little bit like that with Queen of Versailles. I started making a movie about the family building the biggest house in America and it ended up being about them losing the biggest house in America. Here, I mean, it was a really difficult journey in that I expected it to take a year or two. It ended up taking five years. I expected to shoot, I think, about 48 days in the Philippines, and I ended up shooting more than 100 days and covering an election. And as the film progressed and Duterte became president, and that was the end of the story, ended up also filming dead bodies on the streets of Manila. So the story really took me in directions I did not expect. And I had to kind of stay nimble with the Marco story and cover the election. And then also in a way, cross the front lines and go to the opposition and go to the poor people who were supporting Marcos and go to the indigenous people. I ended up needing a much more broader group of voices to tell the story. Tell me what it's like the first time you find yourself in a room with Imelda Marcos. I mean, she's a woman that comes with a lot of history. What is it like the first time you're in the room with her? I mean, she is a very charismatic, charming person and she's in person generous and kind and wants to make sure you've had something to eat and showers everybody with gifts. She's a wonderful interview subject because she's a great storyteller. It took me a little while to realize a lot of the stories are not true or at least don't align with historical accounts, but she definitely takes you into her world. And in a way, that was why I had to 
also have a counterpoint to her stories with truth tellers so that people would have some context for what she's saying. Even her environment was so captivating. The first interview that I did with her, she's surrounded by Picassos and other priceless works of art, which, of course, they have been accused of stealing. There was a commission on good government that was trying to get it back. There's all of these gold animals and different things on her in front of her. She's beautiful. Um, I started filming her at 85. She's still gorgeous. She wears traditional Filipino dress. So she's very tall. So she's really striking. And you can see why the Filipino people and the whole world fell in love with her and the Marcos like Jack and Jackie Kennedy. I think that the interesting paradoxical part is she's also responsible for terrible, terrible consequences of the dictatorship. And so in a way, that's why she was so interesting. Did they know who you were? Did they know kind of what they were in for as far as the possible portrait to be drawn of her when they're sitting down with you in particular? I mean, I don't know. I think she was excited to have the attention of Western journalists, and she knew my general credentials. I think, you know, it is a place where they care about those kinds of credentials, what networks, what magazines, even what college. I went to Harvard, and that goes a long way in the Philippines. You know, she is a narcissist, and I'm not sure how much time she spent. It was always really about her. I mean, my associate producer reminded me the other day when we had a screening that there was one interview where she spoke for three hours and she said that I struggled to get in a question. I mean, the the interesting thing about her is the way she tells stories, but you cannot control, you know, anything with her. In a way, I had to you know, bring in the other elements so that we could understand the context. But with her, you just have to capture what she says. And she is so candid that she drops bombshells and revelations all the time. And it's kind of a filmmaker's dream. But she's also very much in control of what she says. Especially as the movie plays along, the contrast and the tension between what she says and her depictions of things and how you portray the sort of the reality of them, that tension just grows and grows throughout the movie. Especially when you're in the room with her, is it difficult for you to not be charmed by her, to not be in some sense taken in by her? I was charmed by her. And in a way, the structure of the movie kind of mirrors that, I think, in the first act. We do kind of like her. We hear about her backstory. Her humanity does come out because she was an orphan. She had a traumatic early childhood that caused her to throw her throw herself into the arms of Marcos, who was much older and more powerful and richer, and she was very ambitious. And then he betrays her, has um, affairs, especially a very public one. And she also has a nervous breakdown and starting in politics. And then decides she's going to basically become the best politician ever to help her husband, Marcos, and in a way out of her love and devotion to him. So you do empathize with her in the beginning. And I tried to kind of let the audience, in a way, fall in love with her in the beginning the way the people have and to show her power and her charisma, but then to also educate them gradually on the ills of the Marcos regime, the the corruption, the stealing five to ten billion dollars, which has 
also had long-term effects on the poverty of the Philippines and showing the different sides, the inequality, the poverty, the human rights abuses. So we could also understand consequences and and really what it means for them to come back in the current day, the kind of rise of fascism and the return to authoritarian regimes. And we have a clip from the movie where Imelda visits a hospital. She has an assistant get her purse, and they bring out these just immense wads of cash that they just start handing out to people. We're going to listen to that now. Hello, 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 hello. 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 Head executive assistant. Well, hello, hello. This is one of your very good projects, which has been here for 34 years. Center for Cancer Patients, Kids with Cancer. Oh my gosh. Kumusta? Shirley. Shirley. That moment comes fairly early in the movie and at that point she still seems somewhat benign uh, almost as a sweet old lady seemingly doing something charitable but as the movie plays along we realize even that act of seeming generosity there's something sinister about it and that where is that cash coming from whose money is that really for you was that something that was a challenge to grapple with how to contextualize moments like that, how to show things. And then as the movie goes along and her wealth in particular becomes this very problematic issue, how did you kind of deal deal with that as a storyteller? I mean, that was one of the narrative threads was this follow the money. I mean, it was incredible to see because I think there were so many, there's so many things in the movie and in the situation of the Philippines that speak to what we're also going through in the Trumpian era. And of course, we talk about money being a big part of politics, but there it's so transparent. We actually get to see a politician handing out money or giving food or T-shirts to prospective voters. Imelda gives money wherever she goes. She gives it to uh, beggars on the street. She gives it to people in the hospital. It's kind of part of her shtick as the kind of mother of the Filipino people and also makes her beloved. I think at the beginning, you don't know quite how to take it because she's also generous. And, and she really is generous. And she really does feel like she's helping the Filipino people. I, I do think that she believes that she has this kind of philanthropic mission as the mother of the country. And I don't think she really sees the irony in that they stole five to ten billion dollars from the people and that's, you know, they're giving back a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of that. Andy Bautista, who was head of the Commission on Good Government that was going after the ill-gotten wealth, he said that they kind of thought the money was theirs because they were the leaders of that time. And I think that's kind of how she sees it. She has her own reality, and she does nothing wrong in it. But as a filmmaker, I needed to show, first of all, where the money came from, and second of all, where it is now. And so Andy Bautista, who was in charge of going after the ill-gotten wealth, there's a scene where he goes and tries to get the paintings from Imelda Marcos, and she makes them wait for two hours before she lets them up into her apartment. And when he goes up to the apartment, the Picasso that we've seen in earlier scenes in the movie is gone, and all the paintings have been replaced by photographs of the Marcoses. 
If I can, I want to ask you about your larger project, like the idea that you keep returning to these stories of people with extreme wealth. What for you is the larger story that you're telling there? What keeps drawing you back to these kinds of people? Well, in Generation Wealth, I tried to look at that in terms of my own background. I think I've been very affected by growing up in L.A. and seeing kind of over-the-top materialism and its connection to identity and the way insecurity and kind of different kinds of addiction makes us want that. This story started there, but it became really different because of the political aspect, which I had never covered before. I think the part that is in common, though, is her psychological driver. In the film, you see that her acquisition comes from first losing her mother and then getting betrayed by Marcos. And then she just had this hunger for more, and Marcos let her do that. But I think really what drove her was her desire for love by the people, that she loves that adulation from the people. And so I do think that that has a commonality with my other work where all the characters have a kind of loss or hole that they're trying to fill in some way that where it can't be filled. And so they just keep going and often to their downfall. Difference about Imelda Marcos is she is successful at the end. I mean, I didn't expect that when I began. And again, she was so charming. I thought it might be a redemption story for her. I thought I might crack something in her that brought some humanity out or some regret about the abuses of the Marcos regime. I was kind of hoping for that, some kind of character development and also an empathetic character because it's kind of counterintuitive and quite difficult to have an anti-hero at the center of a movie. She starts out likable and by the end, especially when you see their connection to the Duterte regime and the kind of blood on their hands with that, becomes very unlikable and scary. And not just as a character, but as a kind of representation of the return to authoritarian regimes and strongmen that we see happening all over the world. There's a moment in the movie when you just ask her directly if she was involved in the assassination of one of her husband's, you know, her main political rivals, simply as an interviewer, as like a person in the room. What did that feel like? Was that a difficult question to ask? Yeah, that was, so before my first interview, I asked the journalist, Bill Malore, who introduced me to Mrs. Marcos, is there anything I should not ask her? Like, what would offend her? What would make her never want to see me again? What's the protocol? I had never filmed, interviewed a first lady or somebody with that much political power. And he said, really, you can ask her anything. She's not afraid of anything, which I think is why she is so candid. And she'll answer you. I was afraid to ask her about the assassination of Benino Aquino, which most people kind of blame on her and, and maybe her with the military leader, General Vare. I talked to her for a little while before I asked her about that. But as we were going through the history, I had an opening and asked her and kind of said, you know, a lot of people say, you're responsible. Like, how do you respond? And she said, um, why would I do that? I had nothing against him except that he talked too much. And it's like there's something funny and tragic in so many of the things that she says and so many aspects of her life. What drew me in and why I think listening to her is so important is even in her lies, she's a kind of truth teller because she just lets it all out. And then the audience can make up their mind. The movie is 
The Kingmaker. The filmmaker is Lauren Greenfield. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. You can also visit us at latimes.com forward slash The Real.